Matthew 16, verse 18, and although I'm not going to read from the text at this point, I'm going to make a reference to um, Hebrews chapter 11. So it'll be helpful for you to at least have your thumb in that place when we get to that place in the sermon. Towards the end of your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 11. Let me just read this one verse here, and we'll take a moment to reflect on it together from Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to begin with verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what do you who do you who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for the flesh for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. At this point, we'll dismiss the kindergarten and first graders through the back doors. Or kindergarten through second grade is. When you hear the word church, what comes to mind? I mean, somebody says something about church and what's sort of the first image? What's the first words that you would have a? An association with the word church, too. Maybe it's your particular church. It's Christ Community Church. When I think of church, I think of Christ Community. Maybe you think of like a downtown church with one of those beautiful steeples. You think of the different churches down there. Maybe uh, you think of church as like an institution, the church, kind of like you would think of the government. 
you don't necessarily think of something very specific. You just think, oh, the church, the, that, that big organization or the, the big institution. So maybe you think of it as an institution. Maybe you think of a particular building. Maybe you think uh, as you would in a biblical metaphor. Maybe from Colossians you think of the church being the body of Christ. Or from Ephesians 5, you think of the church being the bride of Christ. So you think of sort of an analogy or a picture or metaphor. Or do you think of it as an assembly of called out people? It's probably the best description. The church is an assembly, a specific group that are called out and assembled assembled together to worship the Lord. Well, this morning, we really are beginning a a new series on the church. And and, and when you come to an inquirer's weekend, one of the questions I ask on that Friday evening is, tell us your name, you know, where you're from, and if you have any kind of denominational background. And it's very, always very interesting to hear, you know, in in the course of uh, the time, you know, there's 15 or 20 of us together, maybe. And well, I, I didn't really have a church background, so this is kind of the first church I've come to. Or, well, I grew up Baptist, or I'm Episcopalian, or Catholic, or Methodist, or Brethren, or all kinds of different things. And quite a few of us are, have, well, I started out Baptist, and then I went Methodist, and then I got married and went to the Assemblies of God, and now I'm here, you know. And so it's all kinds of different backgrounds that we come to. And so I thought it would be helpful that as we come together in this Christ Community Church, you know, when you come from a background, you're bringing all your experience, you're bringing all your traditions, you're bringing all your knowledge in here as I am. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to take some time this fall to to think about what the Bible says about the church and the central elements of this called out group of people that we call the church. And I should just issue a warning here up front that I'm assuming that at some point in the series, I'm going to step on your toes. I'm going to step on your experiential toes. I'm going to step on your traditional toes. I'm going to step on your knowledge toes, whatever that is. I feel quite certain if you listen to all these sermons at some point, you'll be like, oh, that's that's not the way I grew up. That's not what I experienced. Or maybe that's not how I read the Bible. And my encouragement is just to say that I'm, I'm going to do my best to try to draw the scriptures together as best I can to bring about a particular point or a point of view. And if it clashes with your point of view, my my encouragement was, would you draw the scriptures together to bring about your point of view rather than draw my experiences together for a different point of view? Because, see, then then that's going to be very subjective. So we're all going to have to land on the Bible together and try to say, well, this best we can do. uh, This is my understanding of this issue that has to deal with the church. And my hope is that even though I may step on your toes or you may come into my office and want to step on my toes, uh, that even though we we might hold some different views, we can still hold on to each other, even in the midst of that time. A good place to begin our study of the church is this this very important passage, very familiar passage to most of us in terms of this conversation between Jesus and Peter and the rest of his disciples. You, You might remember the context that Jesus is on a field trip with his disciples 
And he's taking them to a particular location, which in our minds doesn't really mean very much, but he's taking them to Caesarea Philippi. It'd be like if you were taking a trip to Las Vegas. Just when you hear Las Vegas, certain things come to mind. Oh, okay. And when you hear Caesarea Philippi, what you would realize if you're in the New Testament is Caesarea Philippi is that place where there's a lot of idol worship. That's where you really, if you want to get into idol worship, you go to Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus takes his disciples on this field trip, and then he sort of stands on the stage, as it were, very humbly. And he says, you know, you see all these idols, all the things that man has made that they hope is going to make them happy. Am am I like one of those? Who... Who do you think that I am? Am I just another sort of person on the stage right now? And or or am I somehow different than everything else on the world stage? And Peter gives this great answer. No, no, you're not like you're not like anything on this stage. You're the Christ. It's not a name. It's a title. You're the Messiah. You're the one that everything has been pointing to you. You're the one everyone has been looking for. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And that's the great pronouncement that Peter gives. And then Jesus responds back in verse 17 and 18. And he says to Peter these words. Blessed are you, Peter. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father has helped you understand that when you see me, you're seeing the Messiah. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you can easily see the outline of my sermon here in verse 18. There is a building. I will build my church. There is a builder. I will build. There, the building has a foundation on this rock. And the building is going to have to withstand trials. The gates of hell are going to try to prevail against this building. So there is a building. Christ is saying, I'm going to build something and he is the builder. I'm going to build. I will build. It has a certain foundation. It's on this rock. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And then we know that this building is going to withstand some sort of enemy onslaught. But we are certain that that enemy onslaught is not going to prevail. So let's just look at those. And I'm going to spend most of my time just on this first point. The building. The, the Greek word for the word church is ecclesia, ecclesia. It's usually meant as an assembly of God's people. The word itself is a compound word. E-K, ek, means out. And kaleo, which is ecclesia, put together, is called, call. So it's to call out. This group, this, what, Peter, what, what Jesus says is the church, it's a called out assembly. They're called out to assemble together for a specific purpose. They have a particular identity. So the church is an assembly of called out people. And we know that this assembly really began in earnest 
in the Old Testament with the called out people of Israel, the Old Testament people of God. And you remember in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out of nowhere and says, I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm calling you, Abraham, out of nowhere. We know nothing about Abraham. And then, bingo, Abraham comes on the scene. It's because God has called Abraham out. And he's not just calling a person. He's calling a person who's going he's gonna to make a whole nation of called-out, unique people. And we see the, the beginning of this plan unfolding when you turn to the pages of Exodus. And you see God's plan beginning to unfold as he calls his people out of slavery, out of the slavery in Egypt into the, the glorious light of God's presence. And they're going to be a covenant people. A couple of important aspects that are helpful to see here is first, when we think about this assembly of people, this this church. The first characteristic is that they're chosen. Deuteronomy 7. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it, was, it wasn't because you were more in number than any other people. But it was because the Lord set his love on you and he chose you. For you were the fewest of all the people, but it's because the Lord loves you. So it's a chosen people. And we see the same thing in John chapter 15. Remember, Jesus is looking at his disciples. This is the upper room. And what does he say? What does he say? You did not choose me. But I chose you. I I called you men out. I'm calling people out for a particular purpose. This is assembly or people that are chosen by God. And so when when you arrive into the assembly of God's people, whether you're in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, you always have to remember that your arrival always begins with God. It never begins with you. And one reason that's so helpful for the people in the church to, to remember, to have in your mind that my arrival came from God setting his love on me is so that when you look at people outside the church, you never look down on anybody. There would be no reason for you to look down. There might be every reason for you to get down. But never any reason to look down because you're not here on your own accord. You're here because God has set his affection on you. The second thing that we see about this group of people is that not only does God choose his people, but he desires to dwell with his people. Exodus 25, as, as he's forming this group of people, he says this to Moses, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Remember, he's going to build the tabernacle and the tabernacle is going to travel with the people. And, and, and it's a sense God saying, hey, I know you guys are going to set up camp. And guess what? I'm going to set up camp with you. My tent's going to be right in the middle and you're going to put your tents around mine and we're going to be like one big neighborhood. I'm going to move into your neighborhood. Imagine that God Almighty saying, I'm not just choosing people and standing at some distance. I'm, I'm saying I'm moving into the neighborhood. I'm going to be with you. My desire is to dwell with this group of people. And of course, we hear the same thing when we know that Jesus's name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and what? Made his dwelling 
among us. So we're, we're serving this God who's choosing his people and then he's choosing to be with his people. And the assembly of God's people, which began in the Old Testament, comes into this full flower into the New Testament, which is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. See, God was planting some seeds in Genesis chapter 12, and he's, he understands, that unlike Abraham, God understands that this seed is going to come to a full flower. We're, Abraham, we're talking about a particular nation in your viewpoint, but I'm going to, I'm going to expand this out to every nation, every tribe, every tongue. It's not going to be located in a certain geographic location. When these seeds come to full flower and my people spread out all across the earth, it's going to be every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That's why Peter in first Peter two, nine borrows old Testament language and applies it to the new Testament church. You, you, you and I, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. See, he's importing this picture that was given to God's Old Testament people and saying, hey, now that belongs to you. You Gentiles, you people who are far away. Now you're part of the chosen people. You're part of this people who are declared to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. So, so the New Testament church, there's a lot of ways to describe it, but I just think of it as a, an expansion or an explosion of the Old Testament people of God. The, the seeds that get planted in the beginning explode out all over across the world in the New Testament. And so when we read our Bibles, we don't we don't read our Bibles and think of the the New Testament church as some sort of parenthesis. We think of it as a continuation from old to New Testament. It's not as if God was doing something differently in the Old Testament and now he's doing something new in the New Testament in that same sort of way. And so we would say, if you're familiar with the term, we're not dispensational, covenantal. In the way we look at the Bible. And you might wonder, okay, Paul, why is this important? Like I got to this point in the sermon and I asked myself, if I were you, I'd be sitting there saying, why is this? I mean, this is nice, but why is it important? That's what I would be saying. And so I try to think of your where, what kind of question you might be asking. And, and I, my, my blood gets pumping when I think about this stuff. That's maybe why I'm up here. And, but I want to try to get your blood pumping as to why this is important. Why this is such an incredible piece of news and why it should motivate you and it should strengthen you and it should send you on your way with great power and that is that this Old Testament now is extending in to the New Testament, that, that everything that's begun in the Old Testament is exploding out in this one unfolding story of God. The best way to read our Bible is not as two accounts like an Old Testament and a New Testament or the Old Testament God and the New Testament God or God dealing with the Jews one way and then he's dealing with the Gentiles in another way or the law in the Old Testament and grace in the New Testament. That's not the way to read your Bible. The way to read your Bible is one unfolding flower. And it comes into this full bloom at the cross of Christ. And now we're part of 
his people. We're part of this chosen assembly. So look at with me to, at Hebrews chapter 11. This is where this becomes exciting. The, the, the writer of Hebrews, we're not sure who that person is, but he's trying to spur his congregation on, his, his, the, the people he's writing to. He's trying to encourage them. This is a difficult time to be a part of the church, this first century church. And he's trying to say, hey, guys, I, I want you to keep going in your faith, and I want you to understand you're in a great line of people. This, this group is lining the the parade line, and as you come down as the new people of God here in the New Testament, I want you to know you're, you're, you're being applauded by this great cloud of witnesses. And it, it says this in uh, chapter 11. He just names these names. Abel, verse 4. Abel standing in the line, cheering you on. Noah, a man of great faith, cheering those people on now who are having to be the people of God. Abraham, he's in this line, verse 8. He's cheering those people on that are now part of the people of God. Sarah, verse 11. Moses, 23. Rahab, verse 31. And then he gets to verse 32. What more can I say? And he just keeps listing name after name. And he's saying, hey, you're, you're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Look at verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us now lay aside all these weights of sin that cling so closely to us and run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us let us keep our eyes on Jesus. And the reason this is so important is now I'm saying to you, it's our turn. We're the people of God. It's our turn to run the race. And we've got all these witnesses now, now even more than Hebrews 11. But we've got all these people cheering us on saying, it's your, your turn, your turn to, to step up in Wilmington, North Carolina. Your turn to, to step up in your workplace or in your family. It's your turn to be the people of God, to be identified with God, that God is living amongst you and he's moving you in a particular direction. It's not somebody else's turn. It's your turn. We're not waiting on the government. We're not waiting on some kind of break. We're not waiting on a church over there to somehow get it right or do something different. We're, it's God's moving right now. And he's saying, now it's your turn. You're on the parade route right now. And just in a few years, you're going to be on the side cheering the next group along. But today, it's your turn. And you've got this great history of faithful men and women to say, hey, they made it through difficult times. So no matter how difficult my situation is, no matter how hard it is to hold on to my faith, I see these people cheering me on. And now I'm supposed to step up and I'm not supposed to do anything spectacular other than to hold on to Jesus. That's what's radical about living for Christ is just holding on to him. And wherever he goes, I'm going to go in that direction. Christ Community Church is your turn. It's not just my turn. It's not just the elder's turn or the teacher's turn or the small group leader's turn. It's your turn. You're the church. You're this assembled group of people. 
You're the people, as Paul says, are now to hold out the word of life in a dark generation. It's our turn. And some of us just need to hear it's our turn. No more waiting. Remember, waiting as a college student, waiting for somebody else to do something. You do something. No more waiting at your work. No more waiting to find somebody else to serve somebody in the community. No, it's your, your turn. It's our turn to be those people. And soon enough, we'll be on the sidelines cheering on the next generation, which will be our sons and our daughters. When you think about this assembly of God being this called out people and each taking their turn in their place, in their communities to be this group that have assembled to worship the Lord. It's helpful to think if I'm called out. What have I been called out from? Ecclesia, I'm I'm a called out person, but what have I been called out from? Number one, you've been called out from the world. Since you've been raised with Christ, this is Colossians 3, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry, anger, Rage, malice, slander, filthy language. You see, this called out people are not perfect. But they're supposed to be assembled around God and they're supposed to begin to have the character of God and look different than the world. And that may be one of the greatest challenges, not only to this generation, but to every generation, because we see it in just the life of Israel. It's very hard for Israel to be a nation that followed after God, because as soon as it got into Israel, it started taking on the practices of other people. And that was its problem. And maybe that's a struggle for you. I just can't quite let go of the practices of the world. And notice what Paul says. You have to put it to death. Now, this may be kind of a vivid illustration, but I'm sure you've seen in the movie or a television show, maybe you've even experienced accidentally, being choked. You ever had that feeling somebody comes up behind you and they're kind of wrestling with you thinking it's funny, but you're not breathing anymore? And it's not so funny? And you're like, and then you start swinging around, you know, for air? Or you see somebody in a movie, they're choking somebody, and, and all of a sudden, the, everything starts going wild because i got to do anything I can for air. And, and when you come to a sin, and you put your hands around the throat of that sin, and you start choking it off, guess what that sin's going to do? No, don't kill me. I'm okay. I won't bother you. Just let me live one more time. That's what sin does. And you have to choke the air all the way out. If you let just a little bit of air left, and this is what sin does, it's not that big of a deal. Just keep me on the side. 
I just need a little breath to live. I won't really cause you any harm. There's a thousand lies that sin gives you. And it's your responsibility as a called out people to put it to death. And that means death. In the Greek, death means death. Not mostly dead. And maybe that's just what you need to hear today. If you're a called out person, if you say I'm part of a church, then you're not part of the world. It doesn't mean you don't interface with the world. You do. But you interface the world as a different person. And part of that responsibility is you must put to death anger, rage, lusts, greed. And my guess is that at some point for all of us here, including myself, we're letting something live. We're giving it a little air. It's making a lot of promises to us that it really won't be a bother. And really, we just need to put it to death. If we're the church, we're called out of the world. We're we're also called out of our nationality and ethnicity. Colossians 3 here in the church. There is no Greek or Jew, no difference between the barbarian, the slave, or the free. In in here, in this assembly, when you come into church, your, your primary allegiance shifts now to Jesus and shifts away from your nationality or ethnicity. See, the biggest difference between people now are people who are serving Jesus and people not serving Jesus. Not people from the north or the south. Not people from America or another country. Not people who are black or white. That's not the biggest difference anymore. I'm letting go of my ethnicity and I'm letting go of my nationality as my primary allegiance. We're not saying those things aren't important. But now my primary allegiance shifts to now I'm in Christ. And when you come into this assembly, everyone's on the same level. Only one level at the foot of the cross. Another thing you're called out of is the status, levels of status given in society. Every society, every culture has a way of establishing levels of status. Maybe you're white collar or blue collar. Maybe you're old Wilmington or new Wilmington. Maybe you're poor or middle class or upper middle class or upper class. See, those distinctions don't apply in here. James chapter 2, don't show favoritism. There is no special attention given to the man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes versus a man, a poor man in shabby clothes. See, we're coming away from the world, the things of the world, and we're saying now our primary allegiance is to Christ, and it's not to our nationality or our color or ethnicity. And it's also not according to any kind of status, because we've got a whole different status, because if you've been called, you're a child of God. You're no more or no less. And everybody's the same. There is not a status Other than that one status. And finally, and maybe most difficultly for some of us here and more in other countries. When you're called out to be a part of this new assembly. Some are called out of their own family. 
Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says this, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now, thankfully, that's not the case for many of us, but it is the case for some. And when you get called into this assembly, there is no other relationship that takes priority over your relationship with Christ. And that may mean called out or called away from somebody in your family. Your own family can end up being your enemy. And that's tough, but I mean, you know the stories, do you not, of the men and women who come from other countries with other cultures and they come to Christ and... Their family pretends as if they never were born. And Jesus sets us us up. If we want to be a part of his family, we're going to be called out to a new family. And I guess it emphasizes the importance of being known in this family. See, because if you're coming from a family that has disowned you and you come into this family and it's not welcoming, man, that's a hard road. So it's up to us to look around and say, hey, I'm glad you're part of this new family. I want to be your brother or sister in Christ that maybe you lost in your own family. Let me go through the last three points quickly. The first one is that there is a building. The building is an assembled group of people. This assembled group of people goes from the Old Testament, expands into the New Testament. And this assembled group of people looks differently because they're called out and called into this new group. So there is a building. Number two, there is a builder who is Jesus. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. He says this, great is the wisdom with which Jesus builds his church. All is done in the right time and in the right way. Each stone in its turn is put in the right place. Sometimes he chooses great stones, sometimes small ones. Sometimes the work goes on fast. Sometimes it goes on slowly. Man is frequently impatient and thinks nothing is getting done. But man's time is not God's time. And the great builder makes no mistakes. What a great comfort. Jesus is specifically taking stones and he's putting them together and he never makes a mistake. He never goes, oh, man, that didn't fit. Let's try another one. He's, he's always getting just the right stone, whether it be large or small, to fit in just the right place at just the right time. And you and I might look around and say, well, what's going on? He, he doesn't look like much is happening. And he's saying, hey, I've got it all under control. Trust me, I'm not making any mistakes. Even though God is the great builder He has a design to use us in that process. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. See, Jesus is the builder. And then Paul goes on to say, and then we are God's fellow workers. You feel that tension? It's all about God, but we are his fellow workers. And there's their tension 
And we want to make sure we understand that really God's in control. He's putting things into place, but he's designed it to use you to play your part. You have a role. And my question is, when you think about the church and your your involvement in the body of Christ, what's your role? It's not nothing. It's not, well, I sit in the back and eat the donuts and then go. It's not a good, that's a role I would like to have some days, but. What, what is your role? See, you, you're playing a part. You're playing a, a comfortable part because you know God's not going to make any mistake, even though he's using you, and sometimes that might feel like a mistake. But he's got you designed specifically, and you might be a large rock or you might be a small rock, but you fit somewhere specifically in his plan. And my question to you as a church member is, what's your role? Do you know that role? Are you playing that role? Or are you like a stone that's really disconnected? You're just kind of over here lying on the ground. There's a building. There is a builder. The building has a foundation, which really was my entire sermon last week about the gospel. It's a very sometimes controversial verse here in Matthew 16 when Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus responds back, verse 17, blessed are you. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the question is, what is this rock? What's he building? What's the foundation? Is the foundation Peter or is the foundation what Peter just said, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? And we would say it's not Peter. Please, let's not make it Peter. I mean, as wonderful of a pastor he was, and he took us all the way through first Peter last year. He's shaky. He's a shaky foundation. And so the foundation is what Jesus is, what Peter says, that Jesus is the Christ. And that's what Jesus is building his church on. People who would say that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the the big rock that gets in the jar first, if you remember that of last week. So the building has a foundation and that foundation is Jesus. And let me finish here just with this last point. The church has to have a strong foundation because the gates of hell will form and formulate plans against it. Gates in the Old Testament and the New Testament are places of power, places of decision making, places of counsel. So when you go to the city gate, that's where the the city hall is. That's where the the leaders get together and make decisions about what's going to happen for the city. And when Jesus says the the gates of hell, he's talking about all the counsel of hell, all the leadership of hell is going to come against the church. And he's telling these 12 disciples, be ready, men, that storm is coming and you're going to be the first ones to land on the ground and the gates of hell are going to come against you. One historian says the history of Christ's church has always been one of conflict and war. When I have the inquirers class, most of you will remember this. I do a little diagram of church history. You remember that? So I start with Jesus, you know, the Christ event, and then I get down to where we are today. And when I get through, the, the board looks like, like a bad war zone. Just all kinds of conflict and lines. It just looks like a big scar. Looks like a big battle scene. 
the battle against the church in this world never ends. The battle against God's assembled people never ends. You're not going to get to a place where there's just no more battles in this world. There's always going to be this assault. There's always going to be these councils. There's always going to be this retreat by Satan to say, well, let's regroup and come again. It's never going to be an endless time of peace. It's always going to be one battle after another, one assault after another. Some of the assaults come from the outside. Some of the assaults, the apostle said, apostle Paul says, come from the inside. Wolves who look like sheep. And we need to understand as a church, the battle never, ever comes to an end. Never. It might take a pause for some time, but it's only a pause for another assault. And the reason I think this is so helpful is because so frequently people get hurt inside the church. And I am sorry about that, but I'm not surprised by that. And if you you get surprised by that, what can happen is you can say, well, then I'm not going back to church. Because those people in the church, they have battles. Okay, that's not a surprise. The battle never, ever ends. But with some frequency, people get blown out of the church And they come over and say, well, I'm just going to live all by myself. I'm going to go out and be with God in nature and I can read my Bible by myself and I'm going to get completely isolated. And like a coal that's taken out of a fire, it gets over here and pretty soon what happens to the coal goes cold. I'm not for battles. (laughs) Don't hear me say that. I just don't want us to be surprised by them. See, when you're not surprised by them, you can say, okay, I know. Look, Satan's after us. There's nothing he'd like more than disrupt this body of Christ. There's nothing like more than to disrupt your family. There's nothing he'd like more to blow the whole thing up and everybody go live by themselves and all go cold. That's his whole goal. And so when we come in, we have this conflict. We say, look, let's keep our eyes on Christ. We're going to hold on to Jesus and we're going to have to work through this because we're the people on parade. We're the people that everybody's cheering on and the rest of the world is looking at saying, how are they going to handle this conflict? In Hebrews, the writer ends one portion this way. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but to encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching. We need to remember that in the midst of conflict, in the church from outside or inside. First of all, we need to remember it doesn't prevail. It doesn't prevail. God's church has been under attack for 2000 years for longer than that. If you go back. And it's going to keep going. God has a plan. It's going to prevail. 
But our call here is to hold on to this unswerving hope. To to keep our eyes on Jesus. And as we do, to spur one another on. To, To lead a church. To be involved as a small group leader. To teach Sunday school. To be a deacon. To do the sound booth. To be in the worship band. To be involved in some campus ministry or whatever you may be involved in. Hey, it's hard, isn't it? <laughs> it's hard. And my encouragement to you is find a way to try to spur someone on, not be a spur. We get plenty of spurs. But, but find a way to say, hey, I know what we're trying to do here at Christ Community Church. It's very hard and it's always under assault. So when I walk in, I want to find the nursery worker. I want to find the worship leader. I want to find the sound booth guy and say, thank you for helping. That was so wonderful. That was so encouraging. Not, ah, gosh, that could, sure could have been better. How can you walk in and how can you encourage and you can do it more and more as you see that day approaching. Because very quickly, you and I are going to line the parade route for another group of people. And I hope you want to be one of those people that are encouraging the work of the Lord on this work called the church. Let's pray together. Lord, there's so much that got missed But I pray that what got said, what got heard from your text and my words today, that you are building an identified group of called out people who are supposed to look differently. That you've set it on an unshakable foundation and that it will never fall to the work of the enemy. That you would speak into this church here at Christ Community Church. This little assembled group of people. And to address them as only you can individually about their involvement in the church. Their role. Their feelings about it. Their understanding. Their putting to death things. So that they might live more for you. Lord, as we come together, one of our pieces of worship is in our offerings. I really pray that you would take it to help this church bend down to people in the community and not look down. Understanding that we're here by your compassion so that we might be compassionate to others. In Jesus' name, amen.
Stand with us, we'll sing our closing song, The Church's One Foundation. Sing with me. Mm-hmm.